Hey guys, welcome to the Awakening Report. I'm your host, Doug Hamp. Great to be here with you again. Uh, I've got my guest waiting in the wings. I'm so excited about that. I want to let you know if you want to be part of this ministry, if you want to partner uh, with what we're doing here at uh, the Awakening Report and Douglas Hamp Ministries, which is also part of the Way Congregation, but you can go to my Patreon page. You can give as little as $2 or as much as you want uh, every month. And I just want to let you know that really does help. Keeps the lights on, internet going, kids fed, etc. So thank you for that. And uh, just again, thank you. If you can join us on Shabbat, please come. It's right here on this channel. Uh, we broadcast the services live. And um, what's special about it? Well, we go through the Bible verse by verse. But we also think Torah is cool. So we combine those, that Jesus, Torah, you know, and Sabbath and feasts. But Jesus, right? We never give up on Jesus because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, without further ado, I want to introduce my guest. We have Gary Wayne with us here today. And Gary, it's great to have you back. We had you in the month of November, and as far as I remember correctly. And uh, it was great. We had so much to talk about. And uh Time just got away from us. So thank you for coming back. I really do appreciate that. Well, and uh, yeah, how have you been? I've been uh, excellent, doing, staying very busy. Always have lots to do, but I love doing research. So if I've got nothing else to do, I'll just sort of dig into research. So so happy <laughs> to be back with you. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to another really interesting discussion. Yeah, I, I think we're both kind of geeks that way that we like to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just get nerdy and get into the books. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, it's always fun. I mean, it's fun to dig in and to look at the sources and say, okay, what does this actually say? Yeah. You know, sometimes it can be challenging. Okay. Yep. I think this is what it says, but what does it mean? Right. There's always that well, yeah. issue. And, you know, one of the things I always get asked to, uh, talk about, and again, you know, I think it's fine to, to agree to disagree, but I think the arguments need to be well stated. So, mm -hmm. I've done a few shows and then I'm putting out a series just because I'm kind of frustrated with some of the arguments. So, and I know it's one that you're quite familiar with. It's a serpent seed debate. So, uh -huh. yes. and again, you know, I'm real fine with people saying, you know, I think that that is uh, Satan's son. I get that. And I don't, I never argue with somebody in terms of what they believe or speculate. What I disagree with is the argument set forward and how mm -hmm. the arguments are made in scripture. So, when putting out a four-part series, I did two parts. I got another part coming out uh, this week, and I just sort of walked through what the arguments are in terms of what's in Genesis 4, what's in Genesis 3, and then how they bring in New Testament arguments and just say, you know what, make your arguments, but make it accurate with Scripture. Mm -hmm. and don't insert and overlay things that changes the meaning, which goes in direct conflict sometimes even within the sentence or mm -hmm. within the narrative or with other scriptures so so for our, our listeners just so people know this the serpent seed theory is that satan had sex with eve and out came cain right that's yeah the basic argument right yeah um yeah and and again i'm fine with people sort of believing that because you know for me i don't have any skin in the game i don't care whether he was or he wasn't um uh, but I also, if I'm going to say, well, this is the doctrine, then you better be able to make scripture arguments and not manipulate that scripture. Right. So, yeah. And or and or the meanings that come out of 
Hebrew, where you've got, as you know, or you've, mm -hmm. Hebrew and Greek, you've got several different meanings, right? And mm -hmm. you have to select the right meaning for the sentence it is in and within its narrative and that it doesn't change a meaning that's contradictory to scripture elsewhere. So you have to be quite diligent in how you do it. And the thing is, is, you know, when they change the meanings of some of the words, it actually is in direct conflict with the actual sentence it's in, which is really amazing. So I've been sort of walking through that and, and I'm, I'm hoping that people, you know, sort of understand that I'm not against the concept. I just think that people should make an argument that is scripturally sound. That's all. And then we can agree to disagree. Absolutely. So, I mean, this really brings up a very important discussion of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation. Right. And and sometimes people think, well, some people do kind of willy nilly make up their own thing. All right. But as a scholar, our goal is to go back to the source material. Right. And like what you said, it, it really doesn't matter. Like truth is truth. Right. Whatever the truth yeah. is. Great. Yeah. You know, exactly. and, and if the serpent seed theory were the truth, then fine. You know, but. Uh, we see that it seems to be in great conflict with other things in Scripture. And uh, and so this theory, this hypothesis that people are putting forward, does not have the um, it does not have the rigor when we start examining this under a closer eye, when we start looking at the Hebrew and the Greek, as you said, when we start looking at other passages. I think sometimes what's really difficult for people to understand is that the Bible, is 66 books, right? Just like all the books that I have and you have, right? These are different books by different authors, many of them. Some are, of course, related. But they all, that's the beauty of it. It's a library. It's a library that we carry around. We call it La Biblia, right? We call it the, the books. And, but this is a collection of books. And it has that, that imprint of God's signature on it because. These are written by different people over different times, different places, and yet they're all saying the same basic thing. And there really are no Bible um, uh, discrepancies or, you know, there's no contradictions. I when we start right. taking a, a tight look at it, you know, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand. Like, I, I don't know. I just can't make sense of it. But some things are easier. And so when we start coming to this question of, you know, who fathered uh, Cain, then we say, okay, this is what scripture says. So I, I'm totally with you. I think that's uh, so important. Um, uh, and, and, I, uh, and I agree with that statement 100% that scripture doesn't contradict itself. It will add information at times mm -hmm, yeah, uh, and a lot of times, but it, it'll never conflict itself. And so one of the approaches if somebody actually, you know, wants to research scripture in a way that you're not going to get caught unexpected is, is don't leave out the inconvenient passages. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. you have yeah. to find a way to deal with them. It has to fit like a glove. Yeah. Otherwise you've done something wrong. And just because you can't quite make it fit yet, doesn't mean that you, the answer isn't there. You, you may have to pull in another verse. You may have to pray on it, whatever it takes to sort of get you there. And prophecy works the same way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's one of the disciplines is that I don't want to uh, be caught in a position where I missed a, a you know, particular piece of scripture or I purposely or, you know, ignored yep. it. 
and that in the process though is if there was one that i overlooked it should fit in and if i didn't I right. did something wrong if it doesn't right. fit so go back right. and refit re 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 it in so that's that's the process is mm -hmm. hopefully then i try and communicate people and everything that i try and do um within scripture and broadcasts and blogs and things that i do is is to make sure that you're doing that and one of the other things that again i find interesting that i need to remind people of or I feel obligated to remind people of this, and particularly with prophecy, but all things, is don't apologize for what Jesus said, but place everything around what he said, not vice versa. Mm. I like. I like. Yeah. And and to your to your former point that, you know, as scholars, we're trying to get all the all the information we can on a particular topic. And if we happen to miss something, as you said, it should fit in. But if you know once if we once we find that missing piece of information, if it seriously contradicts, then as uh, honest scholars, then what we want to do is say, well, maybe I need to maybe perhaps abandon my theory. Maybe I have to amend my theory a little bit. Maybe you know it might be a little tweak. It might be huge. And this is where I think we need to be committed to what the Bible says, not to what yes. our theologies say yeah. right it's not you shouldn't go into things with a preconceived view and you shouldn't be afraid to make adjustments if you've learned mm. something new that's that's right. that's what we're all trying to do so it's it should be just it's not about your ego it's about being <laughs> right yeah right exactly yeah so unfortunately the ego can get in there sometimes uh I think we're probably all guilty of that a little bit. So I've got a question for you. I'm, yeah. you know, working on my my new book, uh, which you so graciously have reviewed a uh, an early copy, and I'm I'm still tweaking it. I just want you to know. Um, I, I I'm thinking about the Nephilim, all right. And for me, the question of what kind of soul do the Nephilim have? And yeah. I see that there's three basic options is from what I can kind of tell when we start talking about the, the creation of the soul. So, and, and just, you know, mother and father, regular mother and father, I would subscribe to the transmission theory of the soul that kind of like a little bit of a sourdough starter that, um, you know, my soul came from my parents. It was transmitted to me and we can take that all the way back to Adam and Eve. Yep. Uh, that, that's the theory that I hold. Uh, there's also the creationist one that God creates at the moment of conception. And the other one is something that Origen put forward, which was a platonic idea that there was the pre-existence of the soul and that the souls fell um, at some, you know, pre-existing time. <laughs> we don't know. Um, so for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this question of, the souls of the Nephilim, do they have their own unique soul? Or is it, I, the one I'm leaning to, I'll just say what I'm leaning to, is that um, that they were basically empty shells and that the uh, angels then filled them with their own spirit and they became kind of a Nephilim bodysuit, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think that, you know, what you hit on at the end is very close in terms of how my understanding is in you know about it is as well that if we look at how we are as beings on this earth then 
we're told in the New Testament that there's a body and there's a soul and there's a spirit and only Jesus and God can separate the spirit from the soul and that the spirit is seemingly from the heavenly dimension and probably assigned as it's as we're told that um, you know all of our names were written in the book of life before creation and so there was that intended spirit whether it was created before or it's created as part of our, our birth process because god is alpha omega as well as jesus i mean he knows the beginning from the end so it's not surprising that he would know everybody whose name was in the book of life and all the ones who were erased from the book of life as you as you progress but if we understand that there's a body soul and a spirit we understand that the soul and the body is essentially from the physical world and that the spirit seems to come from god so i think if we're talking about nephilim i think they're housing this body and this soul that's from the physical world that comes from the you know the female side of the original offspring the daughters of, of humans but you have spirits that is created by god and i think god created the spirit as well for the immortal um, angels and that this is that counterfeit spirit that mm. enoch talks about that is passed on that's going to dwell in the uh the body and the soul of, of the being and the offspring and mm -hmm. so i agree with you it's it's more of a, an extended spirit an illegal spirit uh, extended by the angelic beings um that is and i really like the word counterfeit um, mm -hmm. that enoch uses that says what these beings are but they're this spirit can never be in heaven and it's mm -hmm. not permitted to sleep apparently so it is of this world so all they can be is a demigod with a sort of a physical nature and, and a spirit but they could never be within the heavenly realm they're just for the physical universe and whatever other dimensions that you know sort of go back and forth within it like let's say the underworld for example so that's sort of how i sort of make sense of it in my own head without trying to overcomplicate the subject right because <laughs> we can't overcomplicate it yes. and we're speculating because we don't know all the details so yeah uh yeah <laughs> yeah so absolutely. i think there's that one separate component right so yeah yeah and where does that spirit come from right exactly so we got a question from uh scott he's asking uh do you think that revelation uh is linear or cyclical thinking about the seals trumpets and bowls yeah. and why it's a really good question and uh i think uh, what drives the question is a lot of people say that the seal judgments the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are really the same set of catastrophes and therefore there there's not linear in nature in terms of rolling out so my approach to the bible though is it's a linear book it begins in genesis and it ends in revelations and where you have books or let's say verses that may seem a little bit out of the chronology let's say like the book of the prophets you get markers that are going to be put in uh within those books where they're going to fit in with the linear nature that's in first and second kings or first and second chronicles for example so I think that Revelations is linear as well. And so when we look at Revelations, you get between Revelation 1 and 14, basically a lot of details, 
right up to about, say, verse 8 or so in Revelation 14, and then you get this sort of summary of the end time. And so I think Revelation 14, up to the time of the first fruits, who are the 144,000, that's the first three and a half years. You get the summary, and then Revelation 15 through 19 give you the details of that summary. And including in there, you even have the fall of Babylon at that point in time within that summary. So where I'm going with this is as a linear nature, Revelations to me is a linear, is a linear book. And it begins in chapter one and it ends in chapter, you know, 22. And when I look at the, the specific judgments, then I always, as I said earlier, I like to place everything around what Jesus said, not vice versa. And I think Jesus provides the chronology, whether or not it's in Mark or it's in Matthew or it's in Luke. We just have to, you know, accept that he's giving us a chronology and not a collection of subjects. And within that, though, in the early signs, he talks about the birth pangs that are part of the fig tree generation. And the, and the birth pangs or the sorrows and the labor pains, they tend to get quicker and more intensity as labor comes on. So however that type of metaphor is applied, we should expect that those catastrophes are going to increase with intensity. And so with birth pangs, they start off light. And then as they get closer to the last seven years, they're going to get continuously stronger. Now, what's important about the birth pangs is that you have earthquakes, you have famine, you have pestilence, and you have wars and rumors of war. Those are all present in the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. But the difference is now we get a number that's quantified by the time you get into the seals, which will begin around the point of the last seven years, I think probably a little bit just before, but sometimes I go back and forth. But for the most part, I think you get a seal opening just before. They have the same catastrophes at 25%. And mm -hmm. so you get 25% of the people being killed, 25% of destruction. And then later on, and I think the seal judgments happen towards uh, the middle of the, of the first three and a half years, after the ending of the seals, just as they project out of the seals and the linear nature of the narrative, and they come at 33% destruction. And then the bold judgments follow. That would be 100%, except Jesus steps in and prevents the complete destruction. Mm. Do you think it's possible that there are re recapitulations in the book of Revelation? And I, I'm thinking kind of like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? So Genesis 1, he gives us the, the, the big overview, right? Here's all seven days. And then Genesis 2, he focuses in on day six, and he tells us specifically about Adam and kind of what Adam's deal is. Well, we, you get know, a so, little, we get a little bit yeah. of that. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Certainly when okay. you get that summary at the end of Revelation 14, mm -hmm. and then you get the bold judgments and Armageddon that are following that and the destruction yeah. of Babylon. Because, yeah. again, it gives you in that summary the exact details of what's going to happen in the last three and a half years, which match up very well, which happens after the abomination in what, Jesus talks about Matthew 25, Mark 13, Luke 17, and 21. 
And so if you match that up into what Jesus said, then it, all of a sudden you seem to lose these conflicts. But yeah, you do get that overview and then you get the additional information on it, which is what you're talking about um, happens in you know Genesis 1 and, and 2, depending on which way you want to approach those two chapters. Right. So there's <laughs> different yeah. theories on that, but that's another rabbit hole. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, there's always a theory on something. Right? So, I, you know, like the one way that, one of the things that I see in Revelation chapter six is in the sixth seal, you have every island and every mountain moving out of its place. Yeah. To me, that sounds pretty epic. You know, that sounds like end of the world, right? Well, it is. And then I see the same thing happening in Revelation sixteen. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the way I see it is those are those are the same event. But what are your, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, even the people that are talking about the size of these earthquakes that are hiding in, in the caves in the Revelation six think it's the end of the world. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but they're the, they're the boots on the ground here. So maybe they, yeah. <laughs> maybe they've but, got something there. But that's part of, I think, part of the deception that happens in the end time or the confusion in the end time. So that Antichrist can actually come in and say he is the Messiah coming in as Jesus does at Armageddon. So you have to have the same kind of catastrophes that are happening, but not as complete as when Jesus comes, because he's a counterfeit Messiah. So he's going to you know, take credit for these kinds of things. So I think the earthquake that happens in, in Revelation 16 um, is significantly bigger because it's part of the bold judgments than the ones that moves all the islands. So as bad as that's going to be, it gets worse. And again, because you have those proportions that are getting bigger, just as that intensity ought to get bigger. But I recognize the argument because they're the same, they're the same catastrophes. But because of how I approach it, I find that if I look at them ha having coming out of each other as extensions, as the seals are open, the trumps outflow, then the and then the uh, the bull rafts come. It makes sense, and I don't have to worry about other scripture where that's going to fit in. Mm. Okay. Uh, this is a question from uh, Deborah. She says, uh, with all that is happening in the world today, do you think that we are seeing the world set up for the one world government? Well, we're certainly seeing the building blocks, absolutely. And we've been seeing that for quite some time. Again, one of the things that I like to always sort of qualify with prophecy is never get ahead of the chronology and the events. So everything has to be perfect as it's moving forward. And again, there's no contradictions. So every step that we've seen, no matter what is going on, is seemingly setting up the end game. So I don't care whether you're looking at Brexit as people are saying, well, maybe that's not you know, helping with the new world order. I think it's it's properly setting up the geopolitical scenario as, as to how it needs to be in the end time. Or if you've got President Trump in the last four years upending a lot of foreign policy, but yet what he's doing in the Middle East is still moving that in the same direction as what prophecy tells us what, what it's going to sort of look like in the end time, you see that these are all just sort of building blocks. Now, as we get closer to the end time, some of these events could happen quicker and come together quicker. But at this point in time, we're still a long ways off. And 
for me in terms of getting to world government, um, you know, I think you have to have more massive catastrophes. And that's why those birth pangs will continue to need to increase. So mm -hmm. when you look at a pandemic like uh, what we're going through right now with COVID, yeah, it's a pandemic, it's part of the pestilences, but it's not at the level that it's going to be at a seal mm -hmm. judgment or a trumpet yep. judgment. And, and, I it's agree not, <laughs> and it's not going to drive people to world government or to a false religion at this point in time. But it will be part of that whole recipe as we move forward. So again, mm -hmm. look for these birth pangs to get stronger and look for more building block events. And it may come together fairly quickly mm -hmm. as we get towards the last seven years, but we're a ways away. I mean, we don't have, I mean, I, I can't believe people are thinking that, you know, the trumpets have blown and we're already in the last three and a half <laughs> years by chronology. And yeah. <laughs> we haven't, you know, we haven't had the seven year covenant yet. We don't have sacrifices yeah. going on in a week and, of the and let's be we don't clear. Have religion. <laughs> yeah, Jesus said it's going to be the worst time ever yeah. in the history of the world. And yeah. I'm like, look, if this is the worst, this is nothing. There have yeah. been some pretty ugly times during world history. And, you know, this is not perfect, but it's by far not the worst. Uh, so I, I yeah. totally agree with you that we're not we're not there yet. We may be close, but we're not yeah. there. Yeah. The biggest tribulation since the beginning. Yeah. Right as opposed yeah. to the tribulation that goes on before he talks about that, because that statement comes after the abomination where you have a tribulation of the right. saints, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a tribulation too, but it's a tribulation of the saints, not the tribulation of the whole world, which is happens in the last three and a half years. Yeah, I want to ask you a question re related to the two witnesses. Yeah. And then how the Antichrist or the beast overcomes them. We see that they're going to have some phenomenal powers. They're going to be able to call down fire from heaven. They can strike the earth of the plague as often as they want. They can uh, stop it from raining. Uh, they can turn the waters into blood. In my opinion, those sound like uh, Elijah and Moses, but, you know, <laughs> that's another debate. But still, these guys are going to have some supernatural powers. And then the beast is going to come, and he's going to kill them. So in my perspective, that means that he must then at some point possess even greater yeah. powers than what they have. Yeah. Um, do you think, so this is kind of a, a little bit of a complex question here, but what, you know, like what, what do you think happens to the beast? I mean, how does he gain these powers? Um, do you think people might view the two witnesses as aliens or something like that or Kind of what's your perspective on that whole situation? Well, yeah. So I guess the first premise is, is are the two witnesses humans or mm -hmm. are they some sort of angelic being? I would suggest that they're humans because they seem to be killed. And that seems to be the first death. So whether or not it's Elijah, as you say, or it is... Um, Moses or it's Enoch or it's the disciple Jesus loved and you know there's great arguments on all sides <laughs> sure yeah, <laughs> and, I yeah. think, and, I, and I certainly think the, the disciple Jesus loved and uh, Elijah and Enoch probably are going to be here in the last seven years I just don't know which two are going to be 
the uh, the two witness. One could argue, though, that you know Elijah might better fit as one of the seven shepherds for uh, mm. for Israel. Um, and, but, and so the, the the one that Jesus loved, you're suggesting, is John. Is that who? No, I wouldn't say John. Okay, who who? I, uh, fill me well, in here. To me, there'd be there'd be two possible candidates of, as as to the one that Jesus loved. A, you would have Lazarus, who Jesus loved and raised okay. from the dead. Um, okay. Okay. It's a possibility. I kind of like though as well. Uh, ne Nathaniel, and he's the one that Jesus saw or knew before, even before he saw him. And hmm. he's Nathaniel. the one that, yeah. So I kind of looked that he might be, but whoever it is, and I'm not thinking it's John. Okay. For okay. Just my, my own gut feeling. It's I'm not, glad we but, clarified because I, I wasn't sure, but that's good yeah. to know. But I mean, he, you know, then we know that there's something going on with the disciple Jesus loved because when the disciples are talking about, you know, this individual, they say, you know, is he going to live forever? And, and, uh, you know, Jesus clearly addresses him and said, no, I didn't say he was going to live forever, but what is it to you if I want him to remain alive until I return? Right. So somewhere in there, you have this disciple that's going to be possibly one of the witnesses as well. Maybe not one of the two, but you would think he's going to be testifying to Jesus. So whoever the two witnesses are, they're going to testify to important parts. So I think the second, the first death aspect makes them human. And you've got those three candidates that haven't suffered the first death. Lazarus already has. So that's <laughs> kind of makes it a little bit more difficult to, to make sense of that. So I kind of get it down to the three. Now, so, so you're taking the passage in, in uh, Hebrews where it says it is appointed to man to die once and after this a judgment. So you're, yeah. you're taking that as a, as a matter of fact that a person can die once and only once and then, you know, this thing happens. Is that yeah, you're either going to be resurrected, okay. right, to okay. live forever or for judgment or except for those few who are still alive here. Okay. Right. Okay. So not everybody might die. Right. So, but they're transformed yeah. in, instantly. Okay. So that's how I'd understand that. Yeah. Now, Good to clarify. The power, the power that these individuals are going to have um, are going to be extraordinary because they're going to prophesy for three and a half years. And that's how long their commission is said to be in Revelation 11. So I think that's the first three and a half years. And they're going to be a pain in the butt to everybody in the world. And they are going to be described as everything under the book. But people are actually going to celebrate even more so than for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's combined once these three are overtaken by, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by, by, by the beast. And so we know they can suffer a death. And But because they have such great power and Elijah is one of the few ones that are mentioned in the Bible actually could bring fire down from the sky. Uh, you know, he again gets back into that group. That's why it's such an interesting argument as to who these, these could be, but whoever they are, the antichrist does overtake. And, but antichrist receives power from the dragon as we're told about revelation 13. And he may even receive additional powers from let's say one of the angels that might come out of the abyss and that would be maybe a badner or a polyon because mm. he's going to honor a god of forces and i won't go through 
connecting the the, the word forces and, and and the Hebrew word back into Azazel, but there's a connection there, but it's a loose connection. But somehow mm -hmm. he's going to honor the God of forces, mm -hmm. and he's also going to be resurrected seemingly from the dead because he's also going to have a mortal head wound. So whether or not he's getting power, let's say, from Abaddon, Apollyon, or and and Satan combined, or just Satan, he is going to have additional power. And mm -hmm. so much power as Daniel, uh, I think it's Daniel 8 talks about in around verse 10, that he's actually going to overpower some of the starry host and bring them down and trample them on the earth. And this mm -hmm. happens at around the same time as the three are being over, are being uh, the two, I'm sorry, the two witnesses are being overcome and at, at the same time from a chronology of, of events towards the midpoint of the first three and a half years when you're going to have war in heaven so all of it sort of lines up that that power comes from satan possibly assisted by other fallen angels however you want to to look at how that power would be or come by and it would be humans that would be the two witnesses if we just don't know which two and like i say it's a great argument as to who sure i hear you i'm persuaded it's elijah and moses but i could be wrong and we'll have to wait and see <laughs> so i'm not super dogmatic on that uh this is a question from ed he says uh i'll put this up on the screen Gary, will there be a physical third temple, or do you believe that references to the temple in eschatology are the body of Christ somehow? Well, I think there's going to be something physical that is going to be used as the temple. I'm not convinced it's a temple that you would have, like the Jewish people building a whole new temple, as in the first temple or the second temple. But clearly in Daniel 9, you have the sacrifice being done uh, as part of the covenant. And we're told, and I think it's in Daniel 11, that it is from an overspreading of the temple. And an overspreading means an extremity or a wing on the temple. So there, for all of this to happen, there has to be a temple. And then there has to be, it's either on one end or, or wherever the location might be. And for all of this to happen, you're going to need some sort of world religion that is going to bridge everything and permit that to happen because as we know it today the muslims aren't going to permit that to happen and if the muslims were the universal religion they certainly wouldn't permit that to happen so mm -hmm. uh, so i think it's the babylon religion that is going to permit this to happen and be the first to come in and will be the glue to bringing about the 10 king empire of the end time that antichrist is, is going to negotiate and the reason why that tends to work and again just bring in something that's not scripture but something from the descriptions out of the book of josephus his details in terms of where the holy of holies was located was seemingly a little bit closer to the edge of the valley so it may not be where the mosque is today is exactly where the holy of holies was and that there will be some sort of accommodation on a wing or an extremity or an overspreading uh, of the temple. So yes, I would look for something physical in that nature, but not this great structure to be rebuilt between now and the start of the last seven years. Interesting. Yeah, the, the Muslims, of course, would never allow this as far as we can tell there. Uh, but um, the Babylonian religion, um, 
I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I agree with you that I think that Babylon, not the Vatican, you know, they, they might be part of the problem, but they're not the problem, right? And it's not New York City. Again, part of the problem, but not the problem. Las Vegas, right? Yeah, it's part of the problem, but those are all just, those are all branches of this Babylonian religion. And um, yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. And of course, really, the Babylonian religion never went away, but it, I think it could be revived in some very um, interesting ways, uh, you know, just like you have Caesar's Palace in in uh, Las Vegas, you know, there they have all these ancient gods that are there on display, and nobody's worshiping them, but they really are by going and doing all the things that you do in Las Vegas. You're you're kind of worshiping those gods. Yeah, exactly. And look for the polytheist forces who are backing all of the governments and the drive to, to world government and world religion to de-deify Jesus, because that's mm. going to have to be a must if they're going to deceive any Christians whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they're probably going to have to redefine Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, probably at a nexus point with Moses. And typically, mm -hmm. their arguments will come out if you if you if you do a lot of sort of really black research is that they believe that Moses carried with him the religion of Heliopolis, which would be mm -hmm. that extension of the Babylon Babel religion after Babel, right? And mm -hmm. as the second mm -hmm. pillar of the religion after after Babel, that spreads all of this religion to the world, and that Moses carried with them and taught this polytheist religion to the Israelites. But at some point later, it goes rogue as in monotheism. So if they look for them to build a case that way, and that way they can sever the monotheist ties to the three that are tied back to Moses and say, but that's just a falsified religion. Here's the evidence. And pull you back into the Heliopolis religion that Moses would have been taught when he was growing up. You know, I, I don't believe any of that in terms of that's the religion that Moses taught, but that's what they believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe they're going to hit at that. And they also have mystical influences in all three. They have Sufism and Islam. They have Kabbalism and Essenism in, in Judaism. And you have Gnosticism that is absolutely you know, infiltrated Christianity at all sorts of levels that mm -hmm. they're, and, and at leadership levels is that they could actually say, hey, you know what, that's actually true and they're going to deceive a lot of people. But the most difficult part to reunite those religions is to deify Jesus. Mm. Wow. Well, well, we'll see. This is a question from uh, Brilliant Radiance. Uh, why bother trying to resist Satan's NWO if everything is destined or predestined and Jesus will save us anyway? Well, we don't know when the end time is. Mm -hmm. And so people have been predicting the end time forever. I think we might be in the last generation, and I base that on Jerusalem being taken. But I'm open to the fact that everybody who has you know, sort of predicted it, and I'm not predicting dates or anything, you know, it's been wrong ever since mm -hmm. they've, mm -hmm. they've been doing that. So, but what we do know as well is there's evil in every generation that we need to stand up against, mm -hmm. but in a godly way, 
right? right. We need yeah. to do it in, in, in the right way. So that's what we should always be doing, whether or not we're in the last generation or not. And that if you don't push back on evil, I mean, it just gets absolutely you know, worse. So what God has provided us is prophecy to say, this is what is going to happen in the last seven years, not as a blank check to shuck our responsibility, but just to, so that you know what is going to happen. And no matter what tribulation and what generation that you're in, because all Christians, as we're told, will go through tribulations, we need to be standing against evil, but in the right way all the time. Yeah, well, well said, well said. I was just looking at one of the questions here, and this has to do with um, the role of Islam. Uh, this is from Brian. He had a couple of questions here. And I just want to make sure that I kind of get the, uh, the essence of what he's saying here. Um, Islamic eschatology borrowed from biblical themes. And then he says, when Christians finally figure out Jesus can't rule on earth. Sorry, I'm trying to get to his actual question. Uh, so, Jesus fights Islamic nations when he returns. Every nation listed is Islamic today. I'm not sure if he's asking this as a question, but I thought it was an interesting and kind of important point. Um, I have my own thoughts on that, but I'll, I'll let you you lead with what you see as is Islam's role. I mean, you touched on it just a little bit, but I guess kind of the, the real question is, is Islam the boogeyman here, right? Are, are they the ones that Jesus is going to fight per se? Like, is he going to come and fight Islam or is he fighting kind of a bigger thing that could include bits of Islam? So I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. He's fighting Islam as part of a bigger religion and new world order. Islam, they're trying to take over the world by force in every attempt of that by force, whether or not it's any of the beast empires or Hitler or anybody that you want to choose throughout history, they failed at it. So it's got to be put in place first for the Antichrist to come to power. And then he just overthrows three of the kings and probably replaces them and takes control that way. So I don't think Islam is going to take that, take over the world through their religion or through their military power to, to, to make that happen. They are part of the Babylon religion. They will be part of the, the 10 kings of the end time. And the religion will have to be usurped from what it is today and morphed into the Babylon religion. And they will be arguably one or two pieces of the 10 king empire. And for people who may not be familiar with my views, I kind of look at the 10 kings as being 10 groups of nations as opposed to um, individual countries. So I would uh, look at it more from that way, or spheres of influence, or trading blocks, or things like that. And again, if we look at what the polytheist forces are trying to do, and the Club of Rome has been very clear about it, they divided the world up into 10 groups of nations. So taking their lead, that's what they're trying to assemble, whether or not they actually succeed or not. But that sort of seems to fit a little bit better in terms of, of, of what we're what we're looking towards. And so Islam, they're going to have their own Mahdi out of the Shia sect, as opposed to the Sunnis. And so out of the Shia sect, this Mahdi is going to be their Messiah type figure. And he's actually going to have Jesus as part of uh, that whole 
religion and sort of geopolitical knitting of, 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 of government and, and state. But Jesus said there's going to be many false prophets and many antichrists. And antichrist is plural as it's translated into English, at least. And so that would suggest there's going to be a lot of antichrist wannabes. And there could be a lot of powers within the polytheist religions also trying to uh, be the dominant universal religion. So you're going to have this power control going on on a global basis for a while. But there's only one true Babylon religion. And I think that's the allegory coming out of Babel. And I also think it's the same Enochian mysticism, son of Cain, that was part of the giants and mysticism of the antediluvian world that resurfaced after the flood. So I think that's the Babylon religion. And I think everything that's coming out in terms of Islam is just their perspective but it's just going to be one of several wannabes, whether it's the religion or the Antichrist figure. Yeah. yeah. You know, one reason I think that that really the, the, the big bad guy cannot be Islam is because the Antichrist is going to require everybody to worship him, right, the beast, his image, um, and take the mark, right? So yeah. if Islam is good at anything, it's not worshiping images, yes. right? So we have to give them credit for that. Uh, that's why they will only have geometric designs on their stuff, right? They, they do not have any kind of images. And uh, I think it's absolutely antithetical to think that the whole religion would suddenly start worshiping an image when that is just absolutely not going to happen. And they're going to have to worship more than one God. Right. Right. As part yeah. of the polytheist religion. So there's, yeah. that's why I think they get usurped. There's just too many things that prevents within Islam, as we know today, that that's going to be that worldwide religion. Yeah. My feeling is that a lot of them are actually going to have a revival in the end times. And we already hear these reports of people that are having dreams about Jesus or visions and, I, I think that's going to continue to increase and that we will see an actual uh, resurgence or a revival within uh, Islam. And that, yeah. yeah, not everyone's going to make it. Some will be lost. Some will be on the wrong side. But within those different countries, we will have a lot of pockets of people that start putting their trust uh, in Jesus. Uh, and so they will be fighting against the Antichrist ultimately or becoming martyrs or whatever. So, because it says that, you know, this huge uh, amount of, of uh, people, the, these martyrs that die in the tribulation are from every tribe, tongue, yes. and nation, right? They're yes. from all over. They are. They are. And, you know, um, without promoting uh, Islam, which I don't, uh, sure. the Quran has a lot about Jesus. And I think if they were to take their uh, teachings away and add in a bunch of end time scenarios, I think you'll find a lot of those Muslims converting to Christianity because mm -hmm. they already have a lot of information about who Jesus actually is. Yeah, it's just not quite accurate. So they need a little, a little uh, clarification there. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Scott has a follow up question. He says, uh, he was asking about the two witnesses. And so could it be that you have two literal people and two, and the two witnesses are the two 
lampstand, the two churches, and the two olive trees, Judah and Israel? That's a lot in that question. I don't know if you're capturing what he's saying. Uh, well, he, I know Scott, so I, I know, know what he's saying. But Well, I know, I mean, there's you have to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and see how the prophecies match up. And I was qualifying my words out if they're humans, because you have these two lampstands right, right, that right. are talked about in Zechariah that clearly aren't humans by the, by the, by the description. And so that would be the argument that you would use that they're not, humans and, and 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 i get that argument and it makes a lot of sense um but it's that that death part that uh i sort of come back to that uh, they're going to be overpowered by the beast and then risen you know raised back up to heaven after three days so um as far as the churches you do have churches um represented by candlesticks in revelation but they're represented by seven not two and so that doesn't quite really match up for me. So I, I tend to say not from two uh, witnesses of the churches, but two witnesses of perhaps one of the Old Testament and one of the New Testament. And that would make some sense to me, too. Okay. I, I think that's kind of where Scott was going. And I, I think, you know, maybe the question got convoluted, <laughs> but... Um... Uh, this is a question from uh, Deb. Will the watchers come back to earth at some point? Wow. <laughs> that could take like an hour on that question. <laughs> well, the simple answer is yes. Okay. Uh, I would say yes. And, you know, the watchers, um, as they're defined in the book of Enoch, are seraphim angels, cherubim angels, and uh, the Ophanim. And more Ophanim, I deduce where that name comes from is the uh, cherubim like angels that are within the wheels that are talked about in ezekiel 1 and 10 because okay. as you take that back to hebrew you've got gagel which is also used but for these beings specifically uh, within the wheel is ofan uh, put on the im for the plural and you get the ofanium i think that's you know so that's three yeah. now i would uh, say that probably in the rebellious watchers or rebellious angels as who I think the watchers are sort of conflated with as being the same, that you would have rebellion in all ranks of the angels. And that would include the three. So with that being the case, you would have some of each showing up back in the end time of all of those three watchers somehow, some way. Now, what we do know is, is within the last, seven years as I would run the linear nature of revelation that we talked about earlier, you're going to open up the abyss. So you're going to get the impassioned ones for sure. And probably the worst of them ones that are coming out of the abyss. You also have war in heaven that happens at the midpoint uh, in revelation 12. So you're going to have all of those along with Satan that are thrown down to the earth. And certainly those would be classified as some of them as watchers from how I've described it. And watchers are also listed in the King James Version Bible three times in Daniel 4 coming from the throne of heaven, which are typically seraphim. So I kind of think the watchers are specifically identified as the sons of God in Genesis 6 with that connection as the seraphim angels who first... Uh, created uh, the Nephilim, as, as I make all of those connections. So you have 
also angels that I don't think are in the abyss as well. And some of those could be the watchers. I think only the impassioned ones and the worst ones went to, to the abyss because we get mm. descriptions of other kinds of gods that Israelites are worshiping after the flood. And one presumes that if they're not in the abyss and they're worship, worshiping them, that there was some sort of interaction there. And they could be whether or not it's the Baalim or it is the uh, satyr gods. There seems to be an indication that there are degraded gods that aren't in the abyss and they would still be interacting and, and deceiving the world today. So I think all of that suggests that amongst all of those, there's probably some watchers in there. Very good. Well, we are out of time. Thank you, Gary, for coming and sharing your insights uh, into this uh, exciting topic. I mean, you know, we could go on for hours and hours and yeah. hours. Uh, yeah, time went by to hurry. <laughs> I know. Well, there's, there's so much information, but I really yeah. appreciate what you said at the beginning about, you know, how we have to really dig deep into the scholarship. Uh, we have to dig deep into the sources. And I think we always have to just be honest and say there's sometimes we don't know. Sometimes yeah. we can try to put some things together and say, well, maybe I'm speculating. And sometimes we're like, no, I'm really sure about this. And, and that's just where we have to be comfortable with these different things. And the Lord has given us all of these prophecies because he wants us to know. Yes. He wants us to know, even though we have an imperfect understanding of it. But I think we're both in agreement here that as we get closer, these things become crystal clear. You know, you're like, oh, Absolutely. that's what he meant, right? Yeah. You know, well, so, and I think what is the classic example is is that God wants us to know there's going to be, as we talked about earlier, two witnesses. Mm -hmm. What He doesn't want us to know, for whatever the reason is, is exactly who they are, which is mm -hmm. what makes the research and the debate about it so interesting. Because there are possibilities that you can make good cases in in a number of areas, at least yeah. at least four or five that I can think of. So. <laughs> That's cool. Well, again, thank you so much. Do appreciate it. Everybody, so glad you guys could uh, come and join us. Uh, we hope to get Gary back again one of these days. So this has been fantastic. So God bless you. Stay in the